0: Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 145, The Bomb and the Coup. First, as always, thanks to our newest patron, Ivan Lomitov, and to Vesko Petrov for increasing his support. Thank you so much, both of you. Okay, now I've got a little bit of a book update. So after all these years and years of work, the text is done. My, my editor has gone through a, a full second time responded to all of those edits. So the the text is basically finalized. I've just sent it off to some historians and a few uh, history podcasters to give it a read-through, give me any thoughts, and yeah, we'll we'll see what they say and to hopefully give a blurb for the back of the book. But, you know, I might make a few tweaks based on what they say, but it's basically finalized at right about 87,000 words. And right now I'm aiming to have the book printed in november december around then i was really hoping to have it done for christmas but uh just so the time it'll take people to read it the the blurb givers so to speak uh, that timeline's not really possible but expect it probably late this year beginning of next year in addition just to let you all know uh, i'm going to be doing a print run in bulgaria um, and then i'm going to try to do an audio version an ebook version and a print on demand version for the rest of the world so you know, you might be able to buy it online and have it shipped from some of the Bulgarian booksellers that I'll be kind of selling it through, but otherwise, if you're outside of Bulgaria, that's the way you'll be able to get it. Um, any any other thoughts on that, suggestions of things, you can get in touch with me. I'd appreciate any thoughts advice. First time getting through all this publishing stuff, it's a lot. But with that said, let's get into things. Now, last time, Prince Alexander fought to preserve his position as commander-in-chief of the military, as Bulgaria's first liberal government attempted to implement its policies. This included introducing the Lev, coming to an agreement on constructing the Vienna-Constantinople railway line, and some rather aggressive tax collection. However, the liberal prime minister Dragan Tsankov steadily made more and more enemies, until Alexander dismissed and replaced him with Petko Karavelov. As he takes over, the fight between liberal and conservative parties, as well as between factions within the liberals, and as well as between all of them and Prince Alexander, all are heating up. Lastly, the Bersiak revolt also broke out in Macedonia, but it is really being repressed by the Ottomans, and the Ohrid conspiracy which kind of fueled it has been discovered. And that's where we're picking up today, just at the end of 1880, as Bulgarian politics are devolving and the Ottomans are suppressing the uprising in Macedonia. But first, a few quick things to wrap up the year. Firstly, Romania's parliament finalized the legal system it would use to govern northern Dobruja, which you'll recall Bulgaria wanted but was given to Romania in the Treaty of Berlin. This region was placed under martial law and elections there were cancelled. In fact, no elections are going to be held there until 1909. In addition, all social organizations and assemblies are banned. Now, this is a pattern we'll see repeated throughout the region, when one Balkan state takes over an ethnically mixed territory, and this usually results in harsh repression of anyone who's not in the majority ethnic group, and for Bulgarians who've lived in northern Dobruja since many, often the, the time Vasporuch, this likely means an even more difficult than things time than things were under the recent Ottoman period. Now, 1880 also saw the completion of two monuments in Sofia, which you can still find there today, and I'll include photos on the website. The first is the Vasilevsky monument, which was on the spot where he was supposedly executed, uh, which, yeah, again, still in the middle of Sofia. And the second one is a monument called the kind of, I forget the name of the specific monument, but the Doctor's Monument in the Doctor's Garden, uh, which is a monument to commemorate the 531 medics who were killed in the Russo-Ottoman War. Now, I used to live very close to both monuments, I've walked by them both a million times, and they're both really lovely, Uh, especially the Doctor's Garden is one of the nicest, most beautiful parks in central Sofia, so if you're ever visiting Sofia, they're both worth checking out in any case this meant that sofia was becoming more and more of a proper capital with monuments to commemorate her heroes you know we talked before about how a plan for the city is being drawn up so yeah basically we're we're, we're slowly getting more and more things together and sofia is becoming more like a typical capital now the last monument to perhaps mention was a cultural one as the year 1880 also saw the opening of the first modern theater building in plovdiv now getting ahead the early months of 1881 saw mostly progress for Bulgaria in international affairs meetings allowed the new Bulgarian post office to send letters via danubian steamers and bulgaria officially called on the great powers to enforce the treaty of berlin vis-a-vis bulgarian rights in the european territories of the ottoman empire so you know bulgaria's beginning to have more of a foreign policy even though technically it's not really supposed to uh, under the treaty of berlin so it's a bit ironic that they're they're sort of exercising foreign policy uh, to ask for the enforcement of the Treaty of Berlin when the Treaty of Berlin kind of bans them from having an independent foreign policy. But there you go. Another meeting as a part of their foreign policy, again, kind of more strictly finalized plans for this new railway from Vienna to Constantinople, which will pass through Sofia. But while it seemed the new Bulgarian government under Petko Karavelov was moving ahead smoothly with its international goals, the geopolitical reality in which it operated was suddenly and radically altered on March the 13th. On that day, Russian Emperor Alexander II was traveling through the streets of St. Petersburg when a revolutionary terrorist group called People's Will attempted an assassination, initially through a mine, but then through the throwing of a bomb at the Tsar's carriage. The carriage, however, was bulletproof and he survived. Later, when surveying the damage, a second bomb indeed killed him, landed right at his feet it's kind of ironic the day to me played out very similarly to the famous assassination of franz ferdinand and sarajevo decades later where you know the early attempts didn't work and the the assassins were sort of like darn uh, well we tried our best and then all of a sudden another opportunity popped up because the target of the assassination didn't go home but sort of hung around for a while so yeah uh, leaders should really learn from this mistake and stop doing that but While this death did not start a war, as Franz Ferdinand's did, it did change a great many things. First, Prince Alexander in Bulgaria was now without allies in the Russian imperial court. His aunt, the tsar's wife, had died the year before, and basically, even though he didn't always get along perfectly with his uncle, they still had a real personal affection for each other. And now, with his aunt and uncle gone, he felt very personally and politically isolated. Alexander may have been frustrated with Russian policy, but again, he and his uncle were close, and it was important that he knew that he could always try to really talk to his uncle. Now, the other change from Bulgaria was that Russia, with the death of Alexander II, was now ruled by his son and heir, Alexander III. Now, although Alexander III was... Uh, the Bulgarian prince's cousin, the two were not close, and the new emperor was more anti-German and pan-Slavic in his inclinations, both of which did not bode well for the German prince in Sofia. Now, many interpreted this change in the guard to kind of mean that in the future, Russia is going to be less active in Bulgarian affairs, um, but it's still at this point a little unclear what the new emperor will think of Russia. But one thing it is clear is that And I'll talk about this more as we go. The new emperor is a reactionary because of the people who killed his father, but I'll talk about that more in a minute. Now, in any case, the moment he heard the news, Prince Alexander left to attend the funeral. Of course, he wished to both attend the funeral for his beloved uncle, but this was also an important opportunity for him. The new Russian Tsar was brought to the throne. Again, he was a reactionary to the core. He saw the far-left nihilists who killed his father as the enemy, and therefore he had no desire to enact reforms that many on the left were calling for. So, again, he's a reactionary. You know, under Alexander II, Russia, as we've heard, you know, engaged in some reforms, like, you know, the abolishment of serfdom. But according to his son, you know, the people who advocated those reforms murdered his father, and so the reforms are all going to stop immediately. And Remember, the conservatives in Bulgaria had long been trying to paint Bulgaria's Liberal Party as being akin to nihilists, the the people who assassinated uh, the Tsar in St. Petersburg. And so now it seemed possible that Prince Alexander could get his cousin's backing to move against the liberals in abandoning or amending the Constitution. So... That kind of anti-left reactionary element of the Tsar, the the prince's cousin, could maybe create some political openings in Sofia, but it's unclear at the moment. Now, unsurprisingly, Bulgaria's conservatives did take this as a moment to paint their political opponents as basically identical to the assassins in St. Petersburg, uh, without any real cause. But uh, you know, they're gonna, you know, they the life gave them lemons, they're gonna make political lemonade. Now. When the prince left Sofia, importantly, instead of making the prime minister, Karovelov, regent to rule in his absence, he decided to have this responsibility shared with the entire cabinet. Now, this was a very clear indication to everyone that the prince was becoming more wary of Karovelov. So I mentioned before the two had gotten along pretty well personally, despite their political disagreements, but it seems that is fading. Now, over in St. Petersburg, when the two Alexanders finally met for an audience, well, the author Rekun writes his uh, writes about what the implications were. Quote: The prince wanted to undertake some kind of alteration to the constitution. And since this was impossible through the legal channels established at Velikoturnovo, it meant that Battenberg was asking permission for a coup. End quote. Now, we don't have a detailed account of their conversation, but it seems the New basically maintained his father's position of sympathy for the prince's position, but opposition to abandoning the constitution. Now, other analysis indicates that the prince may have left St. Petersburg feeling his cousin might actually turn the other way should he abandon the constitution and might basically say that was fine, but it, we don't know exactly. Um, but it is clear, though, that Sorry, Alexander II is probably going to maintain a roughly similar foreign policy, because remember, the reason Russia does not want the abandonment of the Veliko-Ternovo Constitution is basically that it doesn't want to rock the boat geopolitically in Europe and upset potential allies. But on that note, on the way back to Sofia, the prince did stop in Berlin and Vienna to successfully obtain support from the German and Austro-Hungarian emperors for his idea to basically stage a coup so while the three emperors were in some agreement possibly again we just the the russian emperor is a bit of a question mark britain and france were still very hesitant though well they were sort of accepting well they might be sort of accepting we'll have to see how this plays out but what is important at this moment is that the prince is getting major power support for a coup Now, Rekun goes on to write that, quote, Russian support for the constitutional constitution was about as unambiguous a foreign policy that one could hope for. This makes what greeted Battenberg on his return to Bulgaria all the more interesting, end quote. Now, what he found when he returned on April the 16th was that the minister of war, that Finnish guy who was a Russian general, Enrut, was furious that he was hearing that the liberals intended to manipulate upcoming elections. Now, we have no idea if this is true or not, but... Apparently, he's saying that he heard this was going to happen and is very mad about it. Now, Prince Alexander spoke with a conservative politician who also supported abandoning the Constitution, and that man, Stoylov, wrote in his diary that the choice was not between the Constitution and the prince, but between the prince and chaos. So it's important to keep this in mind. This is kind of the political framing that they're going to be using here, that it's not that You know, constitution or a prince is the choice, but that you know, not agreeing with the coup that the prince is planning is to agree with allowing Bulgaria to devolve into chaos. Now, despite the Russian government's clear position, the war minister, who was in theory working for the Russian government, was on board with the emerging plan to overthrow the constitution and allow the prince to govern without it and have extraordinary powers for a few years before drafting a new constitution, i.e., the whole coup plan. But This shouldn't be surprising. We've seen time and time again that Russian official policy is one thing and Russian agents in Bulgaria are a completely different matter. Now, the conservatives and the prince had long wanted to do all of these things to basically get rid of or amend the constitution, but that Russian veto had always stopped them. Although technically Russia's position again was unchanged, its agent, the minister of war, Enruth, well, he was now actually starting to push for a coup, even threatening to resign if the coup did not go forward. So, you know, everyone's kind of planning, thinking about this. Ideas for a coup were in the air. But ironically enough, despite the official Russian opposition, it was Russia's agent, the minister of war, who really got the coup going. So in the 11 days between Alexander's return to Sofia and April the 27th, coup planning was underway. The Minister of War was careful not to tell St. Petersburg what he and his co-conspirators were up to, and he would later have some excuses about not having the right ciphers and such, but his successors felt that these were pretty absurd excuses. As record writes, it seems that the Minister of War wanted to ask for forgiveness instead of permission. Thus, you can imagine that Tsar Alexander III of Russia and his government were rather shocked to read on April the 27th that Prince Alexander dismissed the National Assembly, fired the liberal government of petko Karavelov, and appointed a caretaker government headed by the Minister of War. In the meantime, Alexander gave himself special powers and called for a Grand National Assembly to consider Bulgaria's path forward. However, the caretaker government quickly moved to ensure the elections in the assembly would not be fair. They did things like attacking meetings of liberals and raiding the offices of their main newspaper. So, you know, ostensibly this is all kind of above board, but it's quite clear in the way everyone's behaving that this is uh, you know an attack on the liberals and that they are seen as the enemy of this coup. Now, the liberals, for their part, they absolutely saw this as a coup. What was the reaction from St. Petersburg besides shock? Well, initially it was silence, as the government there struggled to decide how to respond. Rakun writes about how two reports the Tsar received with differing advices on how to act. Quote, Shepolev argued that Battenberg's new order could only be maintained through the use of the army, and that as the army was staffed by Russian officers, this would put Russia on the side of Bulgarian despotism and against the Bulgarian people, which would have severe repercussions for Russia's prestige in Bulgaria and in the Balkans at large. Shepolev, therefore, recommended that the minister of war be recalled post-haste as a sign of Russian disapproval. Leishin, meanwhile, argued that Battenberg was entirely correct to give the people a choice between the prince and the liberal party, and further argued that the latter was basically a Western or Russian-educated intelligentsia with nothing in common with the Bulgarian population as a whole. Leishin, in essence, argued for the support of Battenberg. Quote. Now, ultimately, the new tsar decided to side with Leishin's second report and to support his cousin, Raccoon writes about how, quote, Alexander III's freshly inflated distaste for liberalism won out handily over his suspicion of Germans such as Battenberg, end quote. However, Russia was also determined to keep this an internal matter and prevent any other great powers from getting involved. Prince Alexander's plan to do an end run around the Russian veto of his coup plans worked. While the liberals struggled to mount a response, Alexander reorganized the country into five districts governed by Russian officers with their own extraordinary powers. He then announced what his aims were. He wished to govern as effectively an absolute monarch for seven years, to reduce the legislature to 70 deputies with franchise limited to wealthy landed people, basically the electoral base of the conservative party. So he wanted to be able to govern as he liked and maybe with the help of a legislature that would be guaranteed to be dominated by the conservative party. So, yeah, justifying his actions, the prince said, quote, At the present moment, more than ever, our country, discredited abroad, is in great internal disorganization. This state of things has shaken the people's faith in justice and equality and inspired it with fears for its future. It is therefore for the prosperity and welfare of the Principality that I consider it my sacred duty to declare solemnly to my people that the present state of affairs in the Principality renders the execution of my mission impossible. End quote. So, there you have it. His, his justification. Again, it's, you know, me or chaos. That there's simply no way I can do my job under the current Constitution. It's absolutely impossible. I had no choice but to enact this coup. Now, I want to pause for a moment here and reflect on how we got here. How did this happen? And to really emphasize that this coup was preventable. The Turnable Constitution was written, and here's the problem, without sufficient thought or care for how it would balance powers and resolve disagreements between the branches of government. And on top of that, exacerbating it tremendously was the choosing of Prince Alexander without having first gotten a feel for his politics or temperament. Alexander had wanted to amend the constitution before he even arrived in Bulgaria. From day one it was clear that was his goal, but no one asked him. So instead of identifying that problem early on and maybe making a different choice or trying to persuade the prince, it was allowed to fester. And now we have the results. Now it's always so easy for outsiders to look at instances like this and talk about how it's always like this in the Balkans, but Again, the circumstances which led to this coup were put in place by foreign powers. Even if Bulgarians wrote the constitution, they were greatly limited in time and scope by the great powers. And anyways, with the imposition of what was basically martial law, Karovelov, Slavikov, and Suknarov were all placed under house arrest. So, all three were prominent liberal politicians and until recently members of the National Assembly. Mm. The three sent an urgent telegram to the Russian foreign minister protesting their imprisonment, but received no reply. Other prominent liberals like Tsankov and Stambolov were allowed to remain free, but were put under intense surveillance. Gradually, the liberals began organizing and protesting against these measures, although many also simply fled to eastern Romelia to continue the fight from there. Soon, the exarch, uh, the exarch of the Bulgarian exarchate, Yosef I, got involved, attempting to organize a compromise to rewrite the constitution, but made little progress. Prince Alexander himself toured the country to rally support, but avoided Tronovo because, well, it was a kind of the hometown of the liberal firebrand Stambolov and he knew he would not be very welcome there. Now, Stambolov did meet with a Russian diplomat to discuss the matter and that diplomat condescendingly assured him that he and the liberals shouldn't worry and that Russia would see that everything worked out. Stambolov shot back, quote, if the prince chafes under the will of the whole nation, how do you expect he will obey your single dictation? End quote. The diplomat was twi- quite taken aback and ended the meeting, but not before Stambolov said simply, time will show whether I am right. So, elections were held in June, but those elections could hardly be called free or fair. The country was effectively under martial law, with harsh penalties for anyone seen to be disrupting the peace. Under these conditions, the liberals had no way to publicly campaign against the prince's actions. Russian officers literally stood over ballot boxes, Stambolov describing them asking each voter how they intended to vote, examining their ballot, and throwing it away or replacing it if it wasn't in favor of the prince's action. Now, even the liberals who were elected through this election felt that they couldn't even attend the Grand National Assembly due to threats of violence. All these factors together allowed the conservatives and supporters of the prince to easily win these elections for the second Supreme National Assembly. Of course, again, Turnbull was still a hotbed of liberal activity, and so they decided to hold the assembly in the conservative stronghold of Svistov on the Danube instead. Now, when the assembly met, it, met, it made pretty quick work of approving everything the prince had asked for. I read some reports that the whole thing took an hour, others that it took 10 minutes, but it was fast. The Turnable Constitution was suspended for seven years. The prince was given extraordinary powers to rule as he liked with whichever advisors he desired. And the National Assembly was reduced from 160 members to 56, with those new vo- voting rules ensuring that only the wealthy elite could access the ballot box. The venue where all this was being decided was surrounded by armed soldiers, while Prince Alexander himself waited for the inevitable decision from his yacht on the Danube. Ironically, just at this moment of triumph, the Russian foreign minister of war was recalled because he was viewed as being too sympathetic to the Bulgarians and perhaps not loyal enough to Russia. Well, I mean he had kind of gone behind the Tsar's back and done all this, so that seems fair. A new government was formed, essentially a coalition between the conservatives and various Russian officials. Petko Karavelov and Petko Slavikov joined many other liberals who again fled to eastern Rumelia. Soon, to kind of exacerbate things, the police force in Bulgaria was disbanded and replaced with a military gendarme. Pardons were also issued to protect those who had committed crimes in service of the prince and the coup in recent months. So, Now, a new era in Bulgaria's short and modern history of independence began. Russia had decided to create a new Bulgarian government run by a German prince and Western-educated conservatives. The question was whether Russia could manage to find common ground with these two groups. Rakun wrote how the coup, quote, "...quite drastically narrowed the Russian state's field of action." Previously, the Russian Empire had essentially three courses of action available to it in Bulgaria. They could support the National Assembly and the Liberals, they could support Battenberg and the Conservatives, or they could remain aloof. The Russian agents in Bulgaria never actually settled on a single option, but they remained open. Now, however, the Russian Empire was inextricably bound to Battenberg and the Conservatives. The Liberals were no longer an option, and remaining aloof was going to be much more difficult now that Enruth, the Minister of War, had overthrown the government. For better or worse, the coup tied Russia's influence in Bulgaria to the fate of a personal authoritarian regime headed up by the now 24-year-old Alexander von Battenberg, end quote. Yeah, R- Rekun did a really, really nice PhD in a book about this. I'm quoting him a lot. I found it extremely useful. If he ever hears about this, big thanks. You did great work here. It really helped uh, understand what was going on. So now... Getting into it, it might seem at first glance that Prince Alexander was at this point triumphant, right? He he got everything he wanted. But in reality, he was stuck between a Russia with very different interests and goals than his own and who felt even more that he should do their bidding and a Bulgarian public, which really didn't give him any kind of political support, let alone a mandate for any of this. So Alexander actually, you know, it seems like he won, but really he also narrowed his options, just as Russia did. But how did Eastern Rumelia feel about all this? To quote Statilova, the coup was, quote, met with surprise and displeasure. The people of Eastern Rumelia declared themselves to be against Battenberg's aims, which they felt would lead the country to a major domestic crisis. They believed that the disorder in the principality would disrupt its position as the international center of Bulgarian unity and encourage the ports, i.e., the Ottomans, influence in the domestic affairs of Eastern Rumelia, and that such developments would in turn reduce the chances for the realization of the pan-national idea anytime soon. End quote. So, makes sense. Yeah, Eastern Rumelia is against this. It's just introducing a bunch of chaos and disrupting all their kind of common goals with Bulgaria. The main newspaper of Plovdiv, Moritza, was even banned in Bulgaria due to a fiery editorial against the coup. But what about the vast majority of peasants who had been supporting the liberals up to this point? How did they feel? What were they doing in all this? Well, ultimately, the peasants remained devoted to Russia as their liberator, and this devotion outweighed their dislike of the Chorbajis in the Conservative Party. Dragan Tsankov noted that if the Russian Tsar told the Bulgarian peasants to elect a hat on a pole, they'd do it. Or as Perry notes, quote, most Bulgarians were apolitical but pro-Russian. Of course, the liberals themselves were horrified and furious over all of these events. There was now no way they could cooperate with the prince, the conservatives, or Russia. All those bridges had been burned. In fact, it seemed at this point that everyone is frantically burning every bridge in sight. So, the year 1881 wrapped up with a few issues with the Ottomans. A council of European creditors formally took over the empire's finances as it was basically bankrupt, and they wanted to ensure that the Ottoman finances could continue to make the enormous debt payments following the recent war. Prince Alexander also drew their anger by minting a medal of Saint Alexander for military and civilian achievements, which the Ottomans saw as a pretense of independence and made them very angry. Still, this was all nothing really new in recent Bulgarian-Ottoman relations, So, the year ends with the coup successful, the constitution suspended, but somehow it seems that no one has really come out on top. The Russians are in a bind. Prince Alexander is in a bind. The conservatives are in a bind. The liberals are furious and helpless. The cycle of undemocratic elections and the political burning of bridges continues. Next time, we'll see where all of it leads as Bulgaria welcomes 1882 and a new political era don't miss it. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. And check out the website, bghistorypodcast.com. And there's a link below where you can see images, a timeline, all kinds of extra stuff to supplement this episode. And I'll see you in the next one.